Alone, alone on the wide blue sea. There's nobody here to talk to but me. And obviously, a ukulele trio. I'm okay. I won't grumble. Just because Nadia went off in a plane with Catherine Rundle. But what's this splashing about in the blue? That sweet chilli fragrance is surely a clue. <laughs> I've just spotted a raft being piloted incredibly ineptly. There's a lot of splashing going on, and I can see it's Nadia and someone else. Who's with Nadia? She brought a new guest. Hello, where have you been? Franch, can you come and help, please? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's kind of out of my purview. Can you ha- hand on to this? Come on, look. I've bought a friend, Franch. I've bought a friend. Hey. Who have you got? Who have you got? Come on, I'll get in the water. It's a very important friend, but he's not been speaking much, I think. He's upset. I think I found him in some distress. And is he not talking because he's been traumatised or because you've not really allowed him to talk? Okay. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. He He's mumbling something about losing his hat. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, it's John Class and Frank. It's oh, my days. John, God, John. God, we've got to revive him. This is Frank. <laughs> this is Frank. He's friendly. Hi, Frank. Hi, hello, John. Hi, Frank. <laughs> Come, come ashore, John. We're going to get you warm. We'll get you some clothes. Hi, Frank. And get you some crisps. Get you some crisps. Chips, Frank. Chips. Chips. Okay, I'll make chips, and we can. And Nadia might surrender something from her secret Twix pile. I'll take whatever you've got. I'll take whatever you've got, Frank. Hi, Frank. Um, listen, John. It's so lovely that you're here. I, I know that you're a little bit traumatized from being adrift in the ocean. But are you up for a little chat about your career and works? I'll try. I'll try my best. <laughs> Can we just check? Are you actually John Klassen or is this just a cruel joke from Nadia? I'm a John Klassen. I think there's more than one, but I am. that is my name also. It is really him, Fran. Please try not to make a show of yourself. Hi, Frank. John, sit on this log. Make right. yourself at home. All right. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. Thank you very much. What a lucky island to come to. <laughs> I'm just going to lay down this gird of homemade crisps at your feet, so just feel free to tuck in. It gets better and better. You're such a considerate host, Frank. <laughs> now, can we ask John a sensible question? Yes. John, mm. can you please tell us, because I know you used to work in animation, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you started out. Yeah. And I'm interested to know... What attracted you to the slightly wonky, weird world of children's literature? Oh, it's so much better. At least for me, it was. Um, When I was working in animation, I was working on movies mostly. I worked on Coraline and I worked on Kung Fu Panda and I worked on some Shrek movies and a few other things. Um, But they take forever to make those things. They take three or four years most of the time. Also, you know, you could be working on something for months and then they'll come in one day and say, that thing we were working on for months is decided, we decided to cut that. And so you don't get to, we're not going to use that anymore. And it's just, you know, it's very fun to make movies with these big studios where they go everywhere. The, the movies go everywhere in the whole world. But then I got a job doing a book one day and they said, said you can do it in the evenings. <laughs> and so I did do it in the evenings and it came out, you know, a few months later and I, it took me four or five months to make and my name was on it and I hadn't had to talk to anybody about it. And And also just for a little while, my job in the movies was to storyboard. And what that means is that you take the script, what people are saying, and you work out how it's going to get shown. And whenever that was my job, 
I wouldn't want to show anything. I would want to move the camera away from the complicated things that were being shown to some quiet corner of the room and just say, you could hear the fight, or you could hear the explosion, or you could hear whatever was happening off screen. And they didn't like that. They liked to show those things, but I don't like to show things very much. And picture books are really good at not showing things and just suggesting that they've happened. And so as soon as I found books, I, it seemed like I realized that and I felt like I'd, I'd come home a little bit. And so I, I left animation and just did books from there on out. Were there any particular books around at, at that kind of crucial time when you were making the jump that made you think, oh yes, this is a world I want to get into? When I was starting, I think Oliver Jeffers was just starting. Someone sent me the Book Eating Boy book mm. and I hadn't seen a book look like that. And I think I saw The Great Paper Caper not too long after that. And I thought like, here's a guy with a look. Do you know what I mean? He has his own personality mm. that's really holding these things together. The books are great on their own too, but it really felt like he had a, an overall idea of what he wanted his books to look like. And I, I hadn't seen that before that strongly. I don't think our work looks very similar, but we're good friends now. and. We talk a lot about, and I think we line up on, he, he's, he's a very good designer too, and I like design, mm, mm, that's my way in mm. too, and so the two of us can talk about that. But I think his books, when they were coming out, those were big deals for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you worked um, in storyboarding because I think that cinematic aesthetic is really noticeable in, in, in a lot of your work. I, I still sort of treat a book like we're in a, on a stage or something like that. There's something called film space where, and that means... Yeah. What it can mean is that if a character is going from left to right inside the book, if they turn around and go backwards from where they came from, that's backwards in the book. You know what I mean? You know, I want my hat back. He, he moves from left to right yeah. throughout the book. And then when he realizes his hat is back where he came from, he turns around and goes backwards through the book. And some people don't make books like this. And some of the editors will tell you, no, 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 he has to keep running forward. You read a book from left to right. As long as he's moving, he should move left to right. But I thought the rabbit was behind him. He's backwards. Mm. And that's film space. That, that, that's that. When you're storyboarding, if you're storyboarding like a chase, if someone's chasing someone on a train or something like that, you have to be very careful not to lose the audience. If you change the camera too much, the audience won't know which way is the right way to go and which way is the wrong way to go. And you have to be very careful about that. And so it helps with books a lot. The thing that's tricky, though, is that if you work in a film for a long time, Sometimes story ideas that you have involve movement. You get used to the idea of coming up with jokes or ideas that involve characters or things moving around. And with books, things can't move around. You have to get used to the idea that you have to have ideas that hold still, or at least the drawings hold still. People that I know who moved from animation into books, myself included, had, took a minute to stop coming up with ideas where things were moving around. Mm. One of the cinematic tricks that you have that I absolutely love. And I love it in cinema, it doesn't happen often enough. I mean, I, I, I use you as the kind of paradigm of it when I'm talking about it, is the unreliable narrator. Uh, I particularly love the narrator of This Is Not My Hat, who's just suicidally naive. <laughs> <laughs> and he's telling a story that the pictures are telling absolutely the opposite story, including what I think, I know what you mean about movement, but like perhaps like the funniest frame that I know is the crab. <laughs> when he says, away. I don't think anyone's going to mention which way I'm going. And the crab is going like, it's pointing this way. And I, every time I see that, I convulse. There's our crab. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's just, this bug-eyed crab just 
absolutely collaborating with the, the enemy. <laughs> just completely, not <laughs> yeah. even a beat before he sells him out. Yeah, not even a little bit of waiting. It's just brilliant. Yeah. No hesitation. I, I see myself in that crab. I do too. The first draft of that book didn't have the crab in it. It was just the little fish and the big fish. And I got to the end and it just felt like the loneliest idea that nobody else had known what had happened. That like only the big fish, as far as we know, was left to know what had happened. And I felt like we need one more person to sort of know, to sort of see what's gone on and to not even, you know, weigh in on it to think whether it was right or wrong, but just to see. And then to introduce him, I wanted to relate to him more because you can't really relate to the little fish, you know. He's wrong. He's trying to convince us that he's right, but he's wrong. And then the big fish is just a big death machine, right? He doesn't have anything to relate to. He's yeah. just a giant death-eating fish. And so when I was going to add someone, I thought we should relate to this person. We should have at least somebody on the ground in the book that we can cling on to. And the idea of seeing the death machine and immediately collapsing morally and, and selling out the <laughs> thing you just saw was very relatable to me. I don't think what's interesting, though, is that a lot of kids, when they see him, they think he was lying to the little fish when he promised to keep his secret. They think oh. at the time he was, you know, when he promised that he knew he was going to give in right away. I don't think that he did. My thought oh. was always that he, he promised very sincerely, I will, I will keep your secret. No one will get any information from me. And then as soon as he was faced with the giant fish, he, he gave up everything. But kids often think that, no, it's a bad crab because he lied. I mean, I guess you'd have trouble def defining a lie. But I think at the time he thought, I'm going to hold fast. Mm. That's so interesting, though. Although the story is very, 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 very simple, it's, quite, it's actually quite a demanding read for children in, in, a, in the sense that they've got to fill in a lot of gaps and they've got to kind of so there's kind of a lot of ellipsis you know but you've got to figure out what what that ending is and and also you've got to figure out that this person who's telling you the story is telling you the wrong story <laughs> well i've noticed that kids don't i think they're initially surprised sometimes that that's going on but they don't have much trouble relating to these things any of them because oh. Children know what it's like to be wrong and they know what it's like to lie and they know what yeah. it's like to promise something and then give in completely. Like they know all of these things. None of these are new concepts to them. I don't see myself as being in the business of introducing anything new to these kids. We're just using what they know and telling stories with them. And so I think if there is a surprise is at the beginning where they're like, is this book doing this? Are we, are we telling the truth here? And then after that, they're very excited because they recognize all of these feelings, I think. Mm. I think one of the greatest pleasures I have when I look at your books, John, is that the characters, they're kind of amoral. They're kind of moral blank slates and they are tested by circumstance. I don't know if they're amoral or whether they make mistakes and we don't have a narrator to tell us what their overall character is like. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's why mm -hmm. I think I would relate to almost all of them is because a lot of the books are about impulse and what you do in the moment. I think that first book, I want my hat back. I don't think the bear even knew what he was going to do when he was running back to the rabbit. I think he saw him when he finally got there and the rabbit was still sitting there where he was that he didn't even run away and he doesn't even apologize. He barely looks surprised when the bear comes back. Um, all he's done is broken a branch in the, in the in-between time. <laughs> and it just felt like the bear was more horrified by that than even by the theft of the hat. That The idea that this rabbit didn't care even about that, didn't even care about being caught, I think horrifies him. And I think he snaps. Mm. And I think that snapping is a relatable feeling 
I think that idea of, of not being on board with what you're doing is something familiar to people and to kids to be like, why am I doing this? I know this is wrong. Yeah. Um, and sitting with that and not having a narrator to be like, we all know it's wrong, right? Because of course we do. I think you have to take that on faith. Yeah. It's just one of the most joyful aspects of that book that, yeah, that's, this happens. That's the consequence. But there's no, like you say, no overarching narrator saying this was bad. This is, you know, kind of telling children uh, how they should feel and and kind of what the lesson is. Um, do you think that's maybe why it had such a huge impact? Because it really did. It, it It almost, I don't know how it was from your perspective, but it felt like, it was an instant, massive, modern classic. How was that from your end? And, and did it take you by surprise? Or, or did you feel intimidated by but two? Oh, yeah, both of those things. It took me by surprise, because I, I think there was a question of whether we were going to be able to publish the book. And not because it was so controversial or anything, but just because um, I had sort of been wandering in the wilderness about how to write my own books for a while. I started as an illustrator. And so when I sat down to write my own thing, it took a long time to find out how to write it. And when you've been lost for a while like that in, in something that you're trying to make, even when you think you've got it, you've hit so many dead ends and false starts that you, you're, you're a little bit beat up. You don't know whether to trust your excitement, right? And so when you show it to people, you get good reactions, but every, every sort of new positive response is a surprise. And it still continues to be. You're like, really? Because I like it, but I've been proven wrong so often. Do you know what I mean? And also it was such a strange, a strange process of making it because it was reductive. What I mean by that is that I'd been writing with narration a lot, trying stories that sounded like picture books that I knew, picture books that I love. And it, they, I tried to sound like those books because when you start something new, you try to copy things that you really like about that area that you're working in. And I couldn't get it. I didn't have a story anyway, but I hated everything I was writing. It didn't sound like me. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a story. It just felt like floundering. And I was very sad. Mm. And then... All of a sudden, I realized I could take out the narration, and that was what was stopping me. I didn't like the sound of said the bear, or the bear has lost his hat. I didn't want to say any of that stuff for some reason. Uh, right. And as soon as there was a trick to say, the bear's only going to talk in black, and then the characters, depending on the country that you have the book in, the characters have colors that correspond to who they are. And mm. as soon as that trick was there, I knew what to write. I could write, because I wasn't in it anymore. It was just the animals' voices. And then as soon as that became the rule, then I thought, well, someone should lie because there's no narrator to tell us that someone's lying. And that's the best use of this trick is that if we have only characters speaking, it's like a play, right? A lot of plays have yeah. people lying because there's no, nobody usually come out on stage to be like, he was lying though, right? Everybody, it's, it's, you're involved because you can see that someone is lying, but it's only the words mm. they're saying. And I really love plays and reading plays and watching them. And so I felt like it was mm -hmm. like that. And that was the, and it came out very quickly. Then it was a space of fifteen minutes. Basically, was the text that we have very, very fast. Right. But it was yeah. that trick. It was like, oh, I've been nervous about something. I didn't know I was nervous about it. And as soon as I take that thing away, now I know what to do. And so all of that weird sort of introspective, like inside your head stuff, was going on. And then when you put it out, you don't know how it will be received because you've been so inside your head for so long. Mm -hmm. And it does freeze you up because all those things feel like happy accidents. When the thing finally falls out, you don't really know. What happened? You just sort of, it, it came so fast that someone said, okay, we'll do it again. And you're like, well, what was I wearing that day? What did I eat for dinner? Because I don't know what to yeah. do. And so those things, you don't feel like you really controlled it. Um, you yeah. felt like you, it was a bunch of happy accidents that fell into place. And then you like it, but you don't know what went into it. Yeah.
And so to do it again meant another trick, but it was a different trick. It was a monologue that time. And then the third book felt mm. the same as that because the second one was, mm -hmm. was well-received too. And so the third one took even longer. I got more and more nervous as the books kept coming out for good reasons because mm. they, were, they mm. were doing well. But you get more and more nervous. So th those three books, the text is very spare. Mm -hmm. And now the school feels more like a novella. Yeah. Is it really a Tyrillian folktale? Yes, it is. It was, the story that I read was only about four pages long, a very quick one. And so when I sat down to write it, my own version of it, which was really strange because I read it and then I, it was in a library far, far away up in Alaska. And then I put the book back on the shelf and I left the library. And so I didn't have access to the book. I didn't read the story again for like a year and a half. And then when I came back to it, when I finally thought I should read that skull story again, I really liked it. I had changed it in my head a lot. I had changed the ending and changed some of the beginning. And I didn't know that I'd done that. It was um, for the kids listening this is a very interesting thing that's going to happen is that the books and the movies and the stories that you like now when you're little, you're going to think of them when you're a grown up. You're going to remember them, but probably what the thing you're going to remember is going to be changed. Your brain changes the things that you think about like that, even in ways you don't remember until you go back and you see those books mm -hmm. or movies again. And you're like, oh, this is so much different than I remembered. Mm. And you don't know why your brain does that to stories, but it's very interesting because usually your brain is trying to help you out with something. It's it's interested when you're learning how to drive a car. There's a saying that you'll are you going to steer the car where you're looking, whether or not you want to go there or not. And I think your brain does that to stories too. If you're thinking about things or you're working on something about yourself or in your life, you're going to steer your stories that way too. Mm. And that's sort of I think what happened with the skull. And so I was interested to write my own version of it because I still remembered what my brain had done to the original one, but I couldn't do it without narration. I tried. I tried to write it with just dialogue and it didn't work. We needed to see a lot of quiet moments with both of them. And you can't have those when it's just dialogue and people talking. But the trick that I had for the narration was to never say how anyone is feeling in the narration. Mm. Uh. All we're doing is saying facts. She yeah. ran through the snow. She fell into the snow. She cried. You don't say she's sad. You say she cried. And those are two different yeah. sentences and things like that that leave the character with some secrets and some dignity was the trick on how to like it was very hard to narrate though I wasn't used to it yeah that was it was I knew it needed to be longer and it needed to be narrated but both those things took a long time to figure out and get get my bravery up to do well I think you've I think you've done it brilliantly because I really felt like I suppose I hadn't thought hadn't consciously realized it was your first book with a narration mm. but I did really feel that it was uh, in terms of your language every word is so beautifully chosen from the very first page um, so it's not a spoiler to anyone who's not read the skull yet, where you say one night in the middle of the night while everyone else was asleep, Attila finally ran away. And I love, I love that. your use of that word finally, which tells us so much without telling us. The original versions of the story, there are a few of them, if you look hard enough, um, they all have reasons why she ran away. And they're, they're the usual fairy tale reasons. You know, there's, there's an evil stepmother or there's parents that she doesn't like or something's happened that they say and I didn't want to there was no room for that I didn't think I wanted to find her in the story running already that just seemed like a, an exciting way to open a story but then if we left that out I was still worried that if you read it you weren't going to necessarily trust that she should have run away you need to be mm. on board with that you need to be like she was right to run away the book has to mm. position it that way and without giving too much away, the word finally was like, well, she's been through enough. We have to trust. The, yeah. We have to trust our narrator. The, the narrator, I think, has to be trustworthy in this one. We can't be pulling tricks like that. It propels the book, I think. Once I took everything out and put the word finally in, now we're wondering what she went through, but we're also showing throughout the book 
the depth of what she went through because we're finding more out about her and what she must have gone through to leave. Well, yeah, and also what she must have gone through to 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 go into this house and to befriend a skull so willingly. <laughs> That's what grabbed me about the story is that like in the original story, there's a drawing in the book and she's she's wearing a big frilly dress and she's got long curly hair and she looks terrified. The drawing is of the headless skeleton holding her up in his arms and she's still holding the skull, but she's so scared in the drawing. And I remember thinking that's not quite right to my mind is that mm. if you think about what she's done, she runs out into the woods, she comes across a house and the deal is that when she meets the skull in the window, he says, you have to carry me around all the time. That's the deal. Mm. She agrees right away. And who is this girl? Right? Who is that? Who is this one who just agrees to that, takes the skull on faith and doesn't mind carrying around a talking skull? Like we have a pretty sturdy little person here. Mm. And so the idea, that's what attracted me to the story was that it was she's so um attractive that way as a hero she's she's very mm. strong and brave and been through things we don't know about but that's who i liked to write about and so we never see her very scared in the book there's one page where no. the skeleton does run in and her eyes are a little wider than normal because they would be i think if they weren't you'd think she was some sort of a robot but i don't think she ever gets truly truly scared she's been scared enough um mm. by the time we meet her i think well, she's she's fantastic you're immediately engaged by her i think one of the things I really loved about it is that it did surprise me. And it, I think one of the things that it had in common with This Is Not My Hat, say, is that I, I was sort of guessing an ending. And I, I was almost like mapping what I thought the ending was going to be. And it wasn't that at all. So I felt that <laughs> yeah. you were playing with me. And I felt like those kids that thought the crab had said something. I was drawn in. Right. I was writing my own version of it. And it wasn't the right version of it. You know. What do you? What did you? Do you remember what you thought was going to happen? I thought the skeleton and the skull were going to get together, and it was just going to be like really happy. Right? <laughs> did you have fun? I thought. I thought. I know. I thought the skeleton didn't have a skull, right. and the skull didn't have a skeleton. It was going to be like I ain't got nobody. I thought Attila was maybe doomed somehow, and she would be the next body for the skull, or some kind of possession. I don't know. Oh, that's way darker than my Oh, ending. my days. Uh, it's too dark. Yeah. I, I, see, I think I'm attracted to stories. This, the, I want my hat back is sort of, well, I wonder if this is true. But the, for this one, I liked the idea that there, nobody really learned anything new. Mm. Um, Otilla, I don't think, changes much in the story. She doesn't learn a new lesson or anything. She's revealed to us. We learn the lesson. Yeah. Yes. Wow, that's great. You know, the idea of, of the skull being like, I wasn't evil after all. Like, <laughs> he's he has to stay a symbol of pure evil for this to work, I think. Mm. And, like, we have to believe from the get-go, and she has to be right in assuming that he is everything wrong with the yeah. world, and she has to completely destroy it over and over and over again. And yeah. that, I think, the goal of the book, once that was the goal of the book, to sort of get that out of out of our systems as an audience, too, along with her, to have a chance to do that, he had to be irredeemable, the, the headless skeleton. But kids do ask about that a lot. It doesn't change, the, I don't think, their their view on the story, but they want to know whether the skull belongs to the, the headless skeleton or not. Yeah. In the original version of the story, yeah. the skull belonged to a woman who was beheaded by a man, a duke, who I can't remember why he did it, but he was beheaded for doing that. They found out about it. You shouldn't be beheading ladies. We're going to behead you. And so he was mad about that and... Took, I was chasing her around, I think for a skull, but also just out of spite because he had been beheaded for beheading her. And that was all too complicated to get into. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I know, it's a mess. Oh um, God, that is 
so Tyrolean. Yeah, it is somehow, isn't it? <laughs> I can see them with their little feathers in their hats chasing each other with machetes. Yeah, right, exactly. With like little villages <laughs> built into their hats and stuff. Oh, all that, no. all that business. But it was. But I liked the symbolism so much. There's such strong symbols: the skull and the headless skeleton, mm. and symbols yeah. of what you're not quite sure. You know, of death and mortality, but also just the head separating from the body is such a great symbol to play with and to leave alone you know what i mean whatever mm. you want to think about why the skull wouldn't want his if it is his skeleton why he wouldn't want that back i don't think of it as as his skeleton but kids often do i don't blame them yeah. it's pretty straightforward mm. but all of that you know why is the skull cursed to be a skull what did he do what is his house like let's look carefully at his house he has a dungeon yeah who is this yeah, guy? That's, that was yeah. worrying. Right? It really frightened me. And so maybe, you know, he's had a couple centuries, it seems like, to hang out by himself and to go over his yeah. life. And that's very interesting, too. And so it, even if it was his body, maybe he doesn't want any part of it anymore. Maybe he feels mm -hmm. that, that was the wrong body to have. I love that page where there's clearly a portrait of him. Yeah. We, we, but we can only see the feet. Yeah. We can't see what, what, we can't see the rest of him. I just said that's genius. And there are loads of, you know, you're so great at kind of doing telling us one story with the image and another another with the words there's there's a, a spread where the skull shows Ottila his collection of masks that he's collected over the years and he and he says oh they're just for show yeah. they're not for you don't wear them they're just for show and then on the next spread they're both wearing a mask <laughs> there's no explanation why you know we can presume that Attila said come on let's live a little I don't think I would have thought of that page turn if I hadn't had kids myself in the last few years um right okay because you know the discussion that might have happened right it, like they she gives yeah. them a look and she's like first of all we're putting the masks on and second of all yeah. what are you going to do about it you're I'm, I'm carrying you around you've got no way to stop me so not only am I going to put a mask on you're getting one too and just that sort of affectionate beat uh, I really tried to show that they were liking each other and getting along and that he was improved by her being there and mm. without saying that, without him saying that, or without her saying that, you want to show it somehow. And that just seemed like the yeah. first time, one of the first times where they're like, we're getting along. This is a nice day we're having. Yeah, it's it's, it's really funny. And, it, and it's one of those touches that, because it's a very eerie book, it's fantastically eerie, but you kind of sprinkle these these little moments in, I don't know, maybe to reassure anyone who's getting too scared. I was just thinking as we were talking, we're not doing... We're not doing a great job of making this sound like the best key stage one reader for the classroom. <laughs> are we? I think we are. I think what I've heard, and I've been really heartened by this because I was worried about the same thing. I was like, are we, are we, is this too scary? Are we going? And I, I didn't think so. And I have to trust my memory of when I was a kid because I was very scared by scary movies and scary TV when I was little. I had no mm. stomach for it. But I always loved scary books and scary stories and books because there, there's something safer about them you can take yeah. them at your own pace um you're not completely immersed you know in a movie there's sound and you're being dragged through time and all of that stuff is out of your control and with mm. a book it's just you're in control more i think um but also i don't know there's something about the way that stories are presented that i just felt braver in a book and i was very proud of feeling braver when i was little i can take this it turns out i'm not a big scaredy cat everywhere i can take scary i yeah. like scary stories it's not even that i can just take them i suck I, I would seek them out and that seems to be the attitude with a lot of parents and kids now is that kids love scary stories and and skulls and and big haunted houses and things they do like them mm. But I think that the trick is, what I've learned even about scary movies and things, is that I enjoy scary... Actually, my favorite movies are scary movies 
when they're done right, when the director or the writer has taken care of me, they can show me things that I would be scared of normally and want to turn off. Mm. But if I'm being taken care of by the person making it, and that's hard to find out exactly what that what ha makes that happen. Why do you feel taken care of? But you do by the good ones. Mm. Mm. It's very interesting. And with kids, I found that with books for kids, I only know how to keep their attention either by making them laugh or scaring them, and sometimes both. Wow. And so they're the two best things. They're the two best things, and so you have to. And I think, but if you can tell a joke. I think that you gain someone's trust too. It means you can communicate. It means you can relate to、oh. them because you've made them laugh, and so it's a way of saying, "Come with me. Come, keep going." This, you know,、mm. if I haven't told them a joke, who knows who I am, and do I really am I to be trusted with this headless skeleton who's about to kick in the door? I don't know.、Mm -hmm. But if I've told you some <laughs> jokes going in, I'm not completely crazy. I, I can be trusted with certain bits of storytelling, so maybe this is going to be okay. I think it is a way to、mm. gain their trust without so much. I don't have a warm narrator, as we said, right? He's very factual, that narrator, and so、mm -hmm. it, he's not sort of bouncing you on his knee with a warm voice the way that we can do if we have audio. And so you have、mm -hmm. to be warm somewhere. You can't be cold all the way through. And so telling a joke is a, hopefully a way to warm it up. What were what were the books that you loved when reading when you were younger, when you were a kid, scary or otherwise? The scary one I liked is over here, and you can still find it. It's been redone a couple of times, but the one from the '70s、mm. is the best. It's called In a Dark Dark Room and Other Scary Stories, and it was、oh, a collection、okay. of short stories. The one I liked was illustrated by、uh, Dirk Zimmer, and it was written by Alvin Schwartz. Alvin Schwartz was known for collecting scary stories for kids over here. He put out a lot of books like that.、Mm -hmm. There's a few of them that are, I think, really scary, and kids remember them. They can't even believe they were allowed to have them. And those are called scary stories to tell in the dark, I think. But this one,、okay. in a dark, dark room, was for younger readers. It was like big, big words, big on the page, more like the skull,、um, but、oh. short stories. And there was one story called the Green Ribbon that's like four pages long, and it's a masterpiece. It's I read it now to kids at Halloween when we tour books. I always end <laughs> the presentation with it. And you can see the teachers in the gymnasium or wherever we are. They recognize it because they're my age now, and they had this book when they were a kid. And they're just shaking their head. <laughs> Don't do this one. And you do it, and the kids—you could like, no matter how long you've been in the gym and how little they are and how excited they are to go for lunch or whatever it is, by the end of it, they're just—they like—they don't say a word. Their mouths are just open. Oh wow! I have to read this. The green ribbon. I can tell it quickly because it's a fun one to tell. It's about <gasps> please. Oh, good, great. A little girl and a boy who meet each other.、Um, And they're in school, and they like each other right away. And she always wears a green ribbon around her neck. And he asks her why she wears this, and she goes, "I'm not going to tell you that." They grow up and they fall in love, and that's the part where all the kids go, "Mrah!" And you're like, "I told you this is a scary story. Hold on." And they do, and they get married. And still, after they're married, he's like, "Now that we're married, come on, give me like the green ribbon is never off of your neck. What's going on with it?" And he's like, "I'm still not. This is still my secret." And then they grow up and they get old, and then she's very old, and then she gets sick and she's dying, and the doctor comes and gives her basically last rites, and she's lying on her deathbed, and the, her old husband comes up and she goes, "Now I can finally tell you why I wear the green ribbon. You can take it off, and you'll see what I was talking about." And he takes it off, and then her head is on the floor, and that's the end of the story. It's just a drawing of a of a lady's head on the floor, and she's dead. Ah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think the last sentence of the story is, and then Jenny's head fell off. And it's <laughs> so great. Just the, I, and it's not about anything, right? There's nothing to be learned from this story. It's just a beautiful, beautiful bit of pacing. And the, the writing is so compact. And so the pacing, the beats are just right. And you could hear a pin drop in what, as you're telling this otherwise quiet story, right? Nothing big happens besides the end. But it's wonderful. Are you illustrating that, John? I'm looking forward to reading your... Oh, I could never touch it. I wouldn't want to. It has been redone and illustrated, and I don't blame anyone for trying, but um, I think I'd be too... I, I think that ha I'm not sure if that happens to other illustrators or not, because every now and then I imagine it happens where you get an opportunity to redo a story that you loved that was illustrated. And I, it's always like made me nervous to, to ask about it, because like so much of what I liked about it was built into... Even if you're not... The illustrations in that particular edition aren't my favorite. They're, they're a bit weird. Yeah. In the 70s were a strange time for illustration, and this mm. certainly fits the bill, but there, I'm just so I, can, I can't separate the drawings from the from the writing. I don't know what I would you know what I just have those drawings in my head. The problem's mm. already been solved somehow. Oh, well, that's fantastic! I'm definitely going to look that one up. I think it's still in print okay. in its original version, but make sure you get the one uh, by Dirk Zimmer and Alvin Schwartz if you can find it. Okay, yeah. I'm going to look it up. Um, are you allowed to? Tell us what you're up to next, or is that yeah. all under wraps? No, no, I can talk about it. Well, Mac Barnett and I, who, I, who do a lot of books together, we have a Christmas yeah. book. It's a joke book that he wrote about how Santa gets down the chimney in various ways. And it answers that, or it doesn't really answer the question, but it, it considers it in a couple of different ways. And then I'm currently just finishing up um, board books for babies. I have a series of three little board books that aren't really stories. They're more like little poems or something. When we had our second mm. kid, we have two boys. I read him more board books than the first one. The first one didn't really know about board books, and I just read him picture books right away, but he didn't know what to do with those. And so everyone gave us board mm. books, and I figured out, or I saw some really good ones. There's one, there's a series by Taro Gomi, a Japanese author-illustrator, G-O-M-I, and mm. they're wonderful, and they're not stories. They're just like poems or something. And it was like, that's right. When they're, when they're mm. really little, they don't even need a story. They just need a reason no. to turn the page mm. or something. It's a yes. different yeah. thing altogether, and I wanted to try it. I, I, I'm... For some reason, the skull notwithstanding, um, I've wanted to get quieter and simpler with the work as it's kept going. Mm. And it was such a great sort of excuse to do that, is to do some ones for very little kids. And so those will be out next fall, I think. Oh, I can't wait to see them. Yeah, it, it's, they're very, very simple, but I like them a lot. Cracking that was, was as hard as the skull was in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Because you have a very considered palette. I sometimes think I just throw every color at every page, which is not the way to go. Um, but you, you, you do, you have an extremely kind of thoughtful, kind of paired back palette. So how does that work with the board books? The board books are all on white. They're like objects. There's no scenery or anything. And so it was kind of oh. an excuse to get a little bit bolder with color. But as bold as I get isn't very bold. I'm very scared of color because I went to school for animation. What that school was, was a lot of drawing with pencils. We weren't coloring right. anything. And so I never was really trained on how to mix color or use it properly. Every now and then I get a reason where it's very simple. You get a red that you need or something like that. But besides that, I, I usually work in black and white and then I add the color later. And I, since I don't really know what it's for, it's added in a very small way. I don't think I have a palette in mind. I'm just afraid of too much color. Whenever I see it used in a really bold way, I'm very jealous of it because I think it's beautiful. Right. But um, I always think I've used color. And then it's out on the shelf next to all the other books in the bookstore. Like, oh, I didn't use any color. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why they that's why they stand out. That's yeah. why you've got a strong visual language. Well, I think that contrast is as important as color. That's important to say, too, is that, like, contrast, darks and lights, I, I get oh. really excited by those and using those oh. properly. And I think that kids and audiences generally are just as grabbed by that as they are by saturation or color. It's just that that's my 
that's more a tool I'm comfortable with. And so if there is impact, it's usually in the contrast and the darks and lights more than the color. And I mean, I guess I don't want to be too techie, but, but in terms of how you create your artwork, is it a kind of mixed media process? Do mm -hmm. you work analog into digital or is it all analog? Like how does it work? No, it's, it's a mix. It's a big mix. I sort of, um, yeah. Uh, for these ones, the board books, it's like all different pieces and they don't touch each other. It's just like a tree and a bush and a house and they're all disconnected on the page. And so what I got to do is just draw 10 houses and then circle my three favorite ones and use those. And then you get to just slot them into that thing. And then yeah. once you've drawn them, I usually draw them for real with inks or paints or whatever it is that mm -hmm. it, I think would look good. And then you get all your weird happy accidents and things that inks and paints do. But then I scan them and I can adjust them sort of the way you would adjust a photograph on film, right? Is that you sort of bring out your darks and lights and you, you make the picture there. And so I really need the adjustment process. I don't, nothing's ever finished on the paper for me. I usually use it as a starting point. And then whenever noise and weird accidents happen, I can either push those back or bring them up depending on what I like. And so both sides are very, I, I look forward to the adjustment process the most. I like drawing, but I, my favorite thing is using the pieces afterwards and, and bringing up yeah. the weird accidents that I liked and, and composing all of that. So it's a big mix for sure. I couldn't do it. I don't think I could have done this job like 50 years ago before there was computers mm -hmm. and things to, to process something. Mm -hmm. Would you, with your animation background, would you want to do a movie of The Skull? For yeah, I think The Skull was written like a movie. I think that's what I said. I, I think about movies a lot too as starting points for the books. And so um, as much as I'd like to think that I'm I've moved over into books in my mind. I think that they do still feel like movies to me. And I want to think about movies yeah. when, like, this is not my hat. I thought about the movie Psycho a lot. It's about guilt and yeah. it's about running. And it's about also the main character being killed before the story is over a long time before in that case. Exactly. And that weird feeling that you have when your main character is gone. And what do you feel like? And that's such a strange feeling. Yeah. I had exactly the same take. Oh, really? Oh, good. That's I, I love that. Yeah, you go around saying it's psycho for kids. Hitchcock is my favorite for all. He was so smart. Hitchcock was so well, smart. Well, when you were talking before about if you're going to do something scary, you should be able to do a joke first. Yeah, that's, that's him. That's what Hitch did. That's him, yeah. To the, I mean, I think he's the greatest. And yeah. Yeah, he was, a, he was a genius at that. I, I love listening to his, because he's such a mechanic too, right? He's so interested in, in tricks and yeah. like, not tricks, but like, he was able to say why things worked. He wasn't like an artist where he's like, I just, it just happens and I don't know. I love that he knew. If you asked him why that scene works, he would have a reason. He knows why mechanically. And I really always loved that. Mm. And for The Skull, my big one was Rebecca. And I didn't steal too much from it, you know, in terms of the story, but it was, it, it was more the tone of it. Just the wow. big sweeping, you know, that feeling of something's up in this big house and what's up and like, just that tone, I think that that's what you remember from stories when you go back to them, yeah. too, is you don't remember the beats or the stories or even the lines or anything. You just remember how you yeah, felt. It's the feel. It's Absolutely. the feel of it. And I was like, I didn't rewatch Rebecca on purpose. And in Rebecca, it's that... Uh, it's that big house in the mist, right? Shadow of the right? rain on the walls. Yeah, all, the all that stuff. As though the house is melting. And she's... The house is kind of unstable. Yeah, the house is unstable until it's not, right? And, and she's unstable. And there's this big foreboding energy to the whole place. But it's a quiet story too right it's about quiet place and quiet people and so both those things together his treatment of that and someone with no name yeah right exactly yeah mo most of the time with his like his his movies are, are, are starting points a lot of it or we found a hat the turtle one it was um it wasn't a hitchcock movie it was one called 
The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a John Huston movie about guys. <gasps> yeah, one of my favorite movies, but like three guys who find treasure in the desert. And then as soon as they find it, they look at each other and they're like, no one knows we're here. No one knows that this treasure but us. And like, who's going to die? <laughs> and just that, yeah. that, just that brilliant, simple setup to be like, we've, we've all found this, but like potentially only one of us can take it or that's the most you know, profitable way to do this. Just those simple physical premises are so attractive, but then the Hitchcock stuff about suspense and how to how to draw something out before you land it. Yeah, so interesting. Do you um do you listen to music while you're working? I had different sections that I listened to. Um, I was really into, and this is another good touchstone movie for that book, is uh, Phantom Thread, P.T. Anderson's movie, Phantom Thread. That's one of my favorite oh, movies, yeah. too. Yeah. And the soundtrack to that is Johnny Greenwood, and it's the most fantastic soundtrack. It's so yes. beautiful, and it's so, like, there, you can hear the piano keys being pressed. There's a tactile way they recorded it, too, where it doesn't feel too clean or anything. There's, but, the, but just the weird softness of it. And it's, again, about a couple, you know, who fall in love and they don't really know why it just happens to them almost like at the start of the thing and then they just have to deal with that and I, that's how I wanted them to feel too is just like they they fall for each other right away without having anything having happened and like that sort of feeling of this big house and this kind of mysterious relationship but then also waltzes were really big like Viennese waltzes because it was sort of in the Germanic kind of Austrian Alps kind of place and that big yeah. dance they have it yeah. just really slowed down echoey waltzes um, they don't suit the whole story but they suit a lot of it and that old stuff so do you listen so do you listen to different kinds of music with different projects or is it just do they inform each other or i think so i can't listen to anything when i'm writing writing is so hard that i have to have like like a, like a weird silent padded room <laughs> but then when i'm illustrating it's very you know I, i've got some distance on that now i don't have to be completely focused i actually like a bit of distraction while i'm drawing because it's such a, a laborious yeah. thing and so the stages are that way where it's like there's a few months of quiet and then once that's all settled then i can relax and draw and listen to stuff we've talked about hitchcock and we've heard you compared to edgar Allan poe and even to samuel beckett do you, do you care about that do you care about how you're perceived or how you're defined it's nice to be in a club of people that you like, I think, when you hear about that kind of thing. If they reference someone that you didn't like, I think you'd find it worrying. Um, you don't want to reference those things too hard, right? You don't want to sound like you're riffing on unknown quantities just too much. But I, I'm flattered by the comparisons. And I, I do talk about Samuel Beckett a little bit because he was so helpful to me in figuring out even what to sound like, I think, those plays and those books. I have a hard time knowing what I would write like if I hadn't read Samuel Beckett in particular. But Poe, too. I read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe when I was little, and I have such good memories of just getting cozy with those stories and that whole feeling of reading. I think I liked, I was discovering how much I liked reading when I was reading his stories. And so you have affection for all of that stuff. I think, too, the more I work in creative fields like this, whether you're talking about a book or a movie or something that you're pitching to other companies who, would, who you would ask to help you make it, right? You have a hard time talking to them about what you want to make without comparisons of known things. And at yeah. first I really chafed at that. I didn't want to compare it to anything. If I had an idea for a story or something, I, I sort of took offense to the idea that I would need to compare it to something that existed because, you know, you want to make your own thing. But as soon as you begin to say, well, it's like Samuel Beckett meets Alfred Hitchcock, 
it's very useful for them to hear that. Now they know what you're going to do, or at least they have a better idea. And then they're not, they're not so surprised when you do do that thing, or it just helps everybody get on the same page. And that can, those comparisons yeah. can have a lot of different right answers. It doesn't mean you're hemmed in then. It just means that you have a certain sensibility. It's sort of like when you go to someone's house and you see the books they have on their shelf, or you see the, the records that they have, you're getting a better idea of who they are. And that's just by virtue of their collection. And so those people are sort of in my collection. And if you say, I like those people, that communicates something about yeah. what you want to make. And so that those things are, it took me a long time to grow up into that, to be like, okay, it's not a cop out to say that I want to make something like those people. Because what I find is that if you don't look at it directly, this is a good trick, is that if you think about stuff like Rebecca or Psycho, don't go watch it again. Don't bring a notepad and go to the theater or put yeah. it on that's that's the way yeah. to sort of get into trouble but if you it's that thing we were talking about before if i remember the last time i saw rebecca which is probably years and years ago i've bent it already i've done my weird thing to it in my mm -hmm. mind in those years since and i i'm going to use that i'm going to use my strange remembrance of rebecca as a tonal starting point and then you're out of jail all, all over the place you're, you're, you're going to make mm. your own thing yeah, and so you can trust that and you can help that that helped me a lot just to think about how i felt about it because that's just mine now i own it now it's me that's really good john it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the island i hope do you feel a little bit better now than when you landed i feel like i'm ready to to do what i should do What's that? I, you know, when you found me, I was in the ocean, and I can't yeah. remember how that all happened, but I have a feeling I should go back. Wow. You, you, you don't want to stay with us? You'd rather walk into the sea? We've got Twix. It's not that I don't want to stay. It's that I, I have to go. There's a difference. Okay. And all I, right. And, and the sea calls you, you have to answer, and yeah. I, I have to go. I respect that. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure here, too, even though I'm leaving on purpose. If you do find help, if you could give them some coordinates, I'd really appreciate it because it's just me and Frank here and, you know, a lot of books to wade through. I doubt I'll speak to anybody ever again, but I'll, oh, no. if I do, I'll, I'll definitely let them know. That's a tragedy for children's literature, but it's been a, it's been a blessing for us to have it your is. company. Thank you very much for having me on the island. Yeah, we'll wake you up. Ah, oh, shame, isn't it, Frank? Instead of wanting to hang out with us here on the island, John Classen actually chose to walk slowly into the sea. I mean, yeah. it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, I feel a bit mournful. Um, really? Yeah. I know what you mean. Should we go, like, do you know the convenient shell that we use? Oh, yeah. Yes. We could cheer ourselves yeah. up by listening to that. And I have identified the convenient shell. Have it you? Is, it is a conch shell. As right. in the and you can you can make it make a sound by blowing into it i don't believe you frank i simply yeah. don't believe you so prove I've, it I, prove it. i have retuned the conch and it will really? now make a melancholy <laughs> noise which will be the noise that tells people that john oh. is fading into the breakers i'm gonna Go do then. it now <gasps> good grief you weren't joking. That was a that was a mournful pop. <laughs> Can I have a go? Yeah, go on. All right. <gasps> mm. Oh, <okay. laughs> didn't didn't quite manage to didn't quite manage to tease out the beautiful crunchy noise lessons. that you did. I'll give I you need some conch, conch lessons. lessons. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've got conch grade A, you know that. You don't wear it lightly, do you? <laughs> Your conch expertise. Anyway, stupid conch. Right, I'm going to wipe down this conch. Like, let's listen. Let's listen. Listen to the conch. Because, look, Emily Drabble from Book Trust is okay. trying desperately to tell us about some brilliant new books. Let's have a listen. Hi, Nadia. Hi, Frank. It's Emily Drabble from Book Trust here. And I'm just so happy I get to talk to you about some of the amazing books I've been reading through this totally magical shell. It all seems to be working so well, so expect some copies of the books to arrive by hot air balloon over the next few days. You're gonna love them. I need to tell you about Foxlight by Katia Ballin, published by Bloomsbury. I judge the book by its russet red glowing cover by illustrator Barry Falls. I love it and I love the book. It's so breathtakingly told, it's so poetic and captivating It will stop an adult reader in their tracks. It stopped me. And for a 10-year-old child reader, this will pull them into something other, something deeper, unusual, bright and brightening like a fox's fur. It's the tale of sisters, Ray and Fen, who were found as babies, curled up with foxes in a den. Now they live at the lighthouse and the edge of the wildlands with all the other foundlings. But unlike the others... They didn't seem to have a mother who left them so that there's no trace of a backstory. Fen has to weave it in magical tales. Then a real fox appears in the fox light, which is the moment when twilight meets the dawn. I love that. And they follow the fox into the wildlands. And a very odd adventure ensues, exploring belonging and sisterhood. It's a very gorgeous book. My second book is for real little ones, a fabulous, robust board book called Make Tracks Emergency by Johnny Duranda, published by Nosy Crow. This is a book to read and seriously enjoy with babies and toddlers, particularly ones that love emergency vehicles. We have lovely labelled pictures of a fire engine, a police car, an ambulance and a rescue helicopter. And I like a board book where there's lots to talk about and interact with and really get into the book. This book has that. And even more of a thrill is the page next to each vehicle where you get to ask questions such as, can you fly this rescue helicopter over the mountains? And the answer is yes, as children can slide a disc of helicopter round some tracks. Whee! It's very good fun. (laughs) This is a brilliant interactive book with a lot of play value. It shows books are fun. This is what you learn from reading this book. It could be the book that a child will demand over and over again as there's so much to read and do. There's so many questions to be asked and so much to play with. It will stand a lot of reading and a lot of chewing. Um, It's a great board book to share one-to-one. Now I want to tell you about The Magic of Forests by Vicky Woodgate, published by DK. This is a fascinating non-fiction book. We get to find out the basics, what's a forest compared to a woodland, for example, and then go into every aspect from forest folklores and fairy tales, the big bad wolf, doorways to fairy realms, to haunted woods, to scientists and activists dedicated to defending forests, to ingredients of medicines in the rainforest, to well-being and forest bathing. Now, I don't know if you have many trees on the island, but if so, get into that. You get to find out everything if you read this book, and I love it so much. 
and Mimi, the beautiful black and white cat, is there to keep us company on every page wearing lots of silly hats. My Family, Your Family by Laura Henry Elaine, illustrated by Giovanni Medoras, published by Penguin. This is a wonderful book that really I think has been missing from our shelves, discussing what makes a family and celebrating the idea that every family is unique. It explores lots of types of family that children live in, including blended families, kinship families and foster families. And it will be so important for children to see their family represented in this book and also the families of their friends and the people they meet. As Laura Henry Alain writes, and incidentally she's the creator of CBeebies, Jojo and Gran Gran, no two families are the same and no matter what a family looks like, it's the love within that counts. This will be a brilliant book to open conversations about different families with your child and also to use in class. There's a really clear glossary and notes for adults to use this book and examples of questions to ask. I'd say it would work probably from a four-year-old to actually a seven or eight-year-old. It's a really great book. Lastly, as this is spooky October after all, I want to recommend The Case of the Haunted Wardrobe by Kareen Getton, published by Pushkin. I think it's nice with you guys on your island are brilliant because this all takes place on a small Jamaican island. It's actually the second book in the De Island Crew Investigate series after the case of the lighthouse intruder. And it would be nice to read that first, but actually there's no real need as the story does stand alone. So our main protagonist, Faison, has been desperate to get back to the lighthouse island and her friends, but they immediately start arguing about membership of their detective agency that they formed in the last book. They need to sort it out as a new case comes straight away, a wardrobe making a terrifying sound. How can Faison track down clues and get to the bottom of this? Read on. It's a very charming read. It puts me in mind of a kind of up-to-date Enid Blyton in some ways. Very good fun for 9 to 11-year-olds or thereabouts. So do read it. OK, that's my message from this haunted shell. Over. Happy reading, Frank and Nadia. I was very interested in the forest bathing. We could go up to the, uh, the island of Brilliant Rainforest and bathe. Yeah. <laughs> Bathe. Yeah, we can do that as long as it's fully clothed. Have you got a wetsuit? No, I've got a bathing machine. You've got a bathing machine. Oh, one of those huge things I can roll you around yeah. in. Yeah. Push you around in. That's going to be a job to get up the hill, isn't it? <laughs> it's something to do, isn't it? Oh, we may as well. Nothing else to do. Yeah, apart on. from push you around the bathing machine. <laughs> read some more read some more books. Speaking of which, all right, listen, we'll do the forest bathing, but before that, have you been reading anything good recently, Frank Cultural Boys? Yeah, so when we were talking to Catherine Rundle, mm. she mentioned Diana Wynne Jones. And yes. I had never read Diana Wynne Jones. And she spoke so highly of her that I thought, well I better I'm obviously missing something here. So I read the, a book called Charmed Life, which is the first yes. in a series of books about magic in which the kind of defining figure is Crestomancy, who is an, a very kind of, well, a very Dumbledore-y magician mm. in a very, very nice dressing gown. And they're kind <laughs> of, he's got a great, I mean, that is 
that's part of it. You know, he's got a great dressing gown. I love gown. a gown. And, uh, Magicians tend to have nice dressing gowns, don't they? Yeah, there's a lot of attention paid to this dressing gown. And it's okay. about two children. They're orphaned in a very kind of Edward Gorey manner at the beginning, in a paddle steamer right. accident. And oh they're bought up by an uncle. And there's a shop that sells magic stuff. And there's a girl yeah. and a boy. And the girl is really kind of a bit obnoxious and pushy. Right. And the boy is quite withdrawn. And there's a huge twist at the end. So it's about learning to be a magician and learning to be good. Yeah. There's a lot. As soon as you start reading it, you realise that like nearly everybody writing about magic is heavily indebted to these books in a good yeah. way. You know that they they are. You know you find something that's like, oh, this is where all these ideas come from. Like sometimes, like. Are you talking about your ideas that? You no, because I never write about magic. <laughs> Uh, you've just written a book about magic. No, that's real magic. Not I'm talking about like oh, magic, magic. Okay. But I'm really confused. But you know what people said about the first Velvet Underground album that only a thousand people bought it, but they all formed yes. a band. It's yes. like that. You've kind of think, oh, okay. This is, and I'm not saying anything like people stealing ideas or plagiarism. It's just like yeah. this. It opens up this whole world of like how magic might work and right okay. siblings and and it's just. It's really, really rich. Ooh. I'm really excited about reading the rest of them. How many? Do you know how many there are? I think there's like a million. I mean, just like, she writes really fast. She wrote Loads. really fast. So apparently A Charmed Life, which is the one that set this off, she wrote it in, are you ready for this? Go on. Two weeks. No, yeah. really? It took me longer than that to learn to play the conch. Good. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> you can really tell. Um. That's amazing. Well, yeah. I, I knew because I shamefully have not read any Dinah Wynne Jones either, and I feel very ashamed about that. But I was uh, looking around at her books and Howl's. I didn't realise that Howl's Moving Castle mm-hmm. is one of a trilogy, yeah. I think, or maybe yeah. one of four. So I, I can see that she's very, very prolific. So do you rest? So this is a good jumping-off point, you think? It's definitely, definitely worth reading, especially you know it's October and this is all witches and magic and black cats and disappearances yeah is it spooky is it a spooky book yeah there's some really unnerving moments in it actually yeah um well that leads me on because i also have gone for a kind of halloweeny wintry read this is um also not this came out a few years ago it's by chris Priestley, and it's called <gasps> uncle montague's tales of terror do you know it yeah, I do. I don't know it well, but I remember my kids being very into it. It is a series of short stories. Um, the edition I have has been illustrated beautifully by David Roberts. Oh, and you mentioned amazing. Edward you mentioned Edward Glory. There's a nod, I think a very deliberate nod from David to Edward Glory in these illustrations. And this is basically MR James for kids. Yeah. Um it's it it's it's ten I think ten short stories beautifully kind of woven together a young boy called Edgar walks through the woods to visit his very mysterious Uncle Montague whose house is only lit by candlelight and they sit by the fire and Uncle Montague tells Edgar various spooky tall tales uh, and kind of as we read them we get more and more unnerved with our surroundings and they are properly scary stories I've been genuinely disturbed <laughs> by them. But I in love the ve- that. In the, very, in the very best way. Yeah, and I love that, what you've just said, it's M.R. James for kids. Because that's, yeah, that's is. real, isn't it? Because M.R. James's name is Montague. So it's... Yes. <laughs> yes, well, I'm wondering, well, presumably then it's a deliberate nod. Yeah, it must be. 
Yeah, so it is Mr. James for kids. The stories are all that the atmosphere, the mood that he conjures up is just fantastic. And I did it did make me the writing is is beautiful. It's so atmospheric. It's such a sense of place. Often I think these like genre books, people don't necessarily think these are, they will have the same literary merit as another kind of book. Do you know what I mean? But also, especially with like with like because of those Dave Roberts pictures, the book is a whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. I yes. remember thinking that the actual physical book was quite scary and wanting to put it under the mattress or something like that. Yeah. So all the characters in this, they tend to be from the same kind of world. I don't know. It feels kind of nineteen thirties ish. And they're all kind of uh, private school boys on holidays with disinterested parents who are kind of left to their own devices and who find strange objects from churches that they shouldn't touch and, you know, all that kind of thing. So it's a real mood piece as well. I was absolutely hooked. And brilliantly, there are two more. There's Tales of Terror from the Black Ship and Tales of Terror from the Tunnel's Mouth. So they are next on my list. I would say, you know, great reads for kids who reckon they can't be scared. I'm going to sit in my bather machine and read them with my yes, feet you're, in the water we'll do that I and mean, if you do, if you get scared don't come crying to me no I won't come crying to me okay. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll blow the conch if I get very scared <laughs> <laughs> you will get very scared and listen just because I can't help myself you mentioned David Roberts David Roberts has a new picture book out you know I love a picture book and this is he's done the illustrations it's written by Helen Doherty I think I'm saying that right and the book is called Someone Just Like You and I just wanted to mention it because it's got some of the most beautiful uh, renderings of children that I have seen in a picture book for oh, as wow. long as I can remember. And it's really beautiful. It's a really simple picture book, a lovely one. The dedication from Helen uh, says, for every child who's ever had to leave their home behind, this story was inspired by the words of Joe Cox. We have more in common than that which divides us. And so it's a lovely chat about the similarities we maybe have with people. And what's it called again? Aren't apparent. Called someone just like you. Oh yeah. Okay. And lots of neon pinks and neon oranges, which my eyes really enjoyed. And uh, David's illustrations are just phenomenal in this. There's a real. Um, yeah, that's yeah. incredible. I'm going to be staring at it for a long time. So that's my sneaky picture book. You know, I like to sneak a picture book in. Fabulous. Well, I'm going to take Uncle Montague and a candle, and I'm going to go and. St- Doke the engine of my bathing machine. Oh, Some goodness. So, Shovel the coal in. Get it going. Do, so do I, do I have to push this bathing machine? No, it's got it's a steam-powered bathing machine. It's a steam-powered bathing machine. Yeah. I'm going to crash through the jungle. Oh, goodness. Well, you crack on and do that. I might just chill out here, to be honest. Okay. okay. Um, and listen to the beautiful sounds of the ukulele off trio. Oh, that's And just cool. kind of chill out and, and read my book if that's alright with you. Okay, well, good night Nadia Shireen, good night Jeff Bird, good night Ukulele Uff, and goodbye Splashy Splashy John Classic. Hi Frank. And a special goodbye and apology to Emily Drabble from Book Trust for everything you've gone through <laughs> with the whole conch situation. <laughs> I am sorry about that, but I hope you're okay. Bye everyone. Bye.